word. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm 83, please? Psalm 83. And you know it's going to be a good sermon when the pastor's forgotten his notes. So (laughs) this is uh, going to be from memory, but we trust the Lord will help us. We'll just ask the Lord to bless the scriptures, shall we, uh, before we read them. Father, I thank you for the help of the Holy Spirit. I thank you so much for his presence and power. And I thank you for Christ in us, the hope of glory. What a people we are, Lord, by the grace of God. What a hope we have. And I just praise you for it, Lord. Bless the word to us now, Lord. And we do realize big things are happening in our world right now. We pray for the church friends, Lord, who really need you at this time. We do pray for Alan and his family at this time, Lord. Words cannot begin to express, Lord, the the feelings we have for what they're going through. And we just ask, Lord, draw near to them, Lord. Help them so much, we pray. We ask for your mercy, your grace, your comfort, your strength. And for him and Victoria and the whole family at this time. And we do pray, Lord, for the peace of Jerusalem tonight, Lord. And pray for the situation in Israel. We're going to be talking about a bit tonight, Lord. And we just ask that... Lord, as we're thinking about this tonight, we pray that you would be with your people there, Lord, and, and uh, Lord, your, your elect nation, Lord, in this world. We pray that you would spare them, protect them, deliver them, give them victory over their enemies. And Lord, I do just pray that you would, Lord, work all things out in this situation for the good of the people there, Lord, for the advancement of the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 83, Psalm 83, it says it's a song, uh, so it was a musical one, and it's a, a psalm of Asaph. Do not keep silent, O God, do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They have formed a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot Selah. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb. Yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. Oh my God. Make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. As the fire burns the woods and the flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that they may know that you whose name alone is the Lord are the most high over all the earth. 
please keep your Bibles open there. Uh, I'm sure you, you've, you're familiar from me telling you in the past about General Allenby, who was uh, the leader of the British Armed Forces in, in the Middle East uh, at the time of World War I. And in 1917, General Allenby and the British forces took back Jerusalem, or took Jerusalem from the Ottoman Turk Empire, which had held it for many hundreds of years. And it opened the way for the Jewish people to go back to the land in 1917. Well, at the time when his troops were in the land, uh, they sent home requests for things that they needed while they were out there. Sounds a bit like when your son or daughter's away at university, doesn't it? You know, please send this, please send that. And they, they requested... They requested two things. They requested Bibles and they requested matches. Bibles so they could read about the land in which they were moving as, uh, as they were moving around Abraham's land and drinking water from Abraham's wells. Suddenly it, it, they wanted to know about this and matches so they could even read their Bibles at night. <laughs> Because they were so excited about what was happening, where they were, and what was happening and the significance of it, that this book, which to them perhaps before had been a dry, dusty old book, suddenly now it became a living, exciting book. And you know, it has that effect, doesn't it? When you're, when you're in a situation, you realise what the Bible says is relevant to what's happening. Suddenly a book, which may be hard to pick up when you're young, suddenly becomes a book you can't put down. And that's, that's true because this book is a prophetic book. And it speaks into the history of the world and into the prophecy of the world. And uh, that's why I want us to have a look at this psalm tonight. Because, as you know, this weekend uh, there was a major, major offensive launched from Gaza and other places against Israel. Someone said to me this morning, it just came out of the blue, it was a you know, total surprise attack. I have to be honest with you, it wasn't a surprise attack. It wasn't a surprise attack to me, and I'm not saying that in a big-headed way. But uh, like I said this morning about my on-this-day thing, I noticed on the 6th of October, there were two or three things that were interesting. Uh, and one of them was it was the day William Tyndale was burnt at the stake. And the other thing was, I noticed, it was the 6th of October, 1973, was the Yom Kippur War. And I thought, do you know what? That's 50 years to the day. That's, that's a jubilee in the Bible terms. And uh, you can be pretty sure that wouldn't have escaped the significance of it to either the Jewish people or their enemies. And so that's why I believe they launched this attack on that very day. And at six o'clock in the morning, I think it was, rocket fire started landing in the land of Israel and uh, rockets fell by the hundreds and thousands. Uh, the Iron Dome system seems to have been uh, overcome now by their enemies, which is a, a serious concern for Israeli security because that has kept them safe from rocket fire for so long. And uh, not only did they invade, but uh, not only did they bomb, but they also invaded. They beat down the fences and uh, they managed to come into the land and hostages have been taken in the land and there have been massacres. They reckon at least 600 have been killed, Israelis have been killed. Uh, terrible hostage situations. Uh, families, young children and wives been taken away into Gaza 
And uh, if you want to really drive you to your knees in prayer, go online and look at the pictures of those who have been kidnapped and people saying, please pray for our families, please get our families back. Because it really is disturbing. Uh, Some of the most disturbing things I've seen were the pictures of the young people. There was a big Young People's Open uh, event and uh, the, 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 the troops from Hamas surrounded them and just gunned them all down. Hundreds of young people just at a, a sort of party con- pop concert thing and they just gunned them down. It's terrible, terrible attack. And uh, it's, it's, it's showing uh, something very significant happening. One of the things that's happened as well is that they have mastered drone bombing and if you get Amir Safati's um, uh, app on your phone, and I would recommend that, it's called Behold Israel. You'll find news reports on there. It's very good. It's inside news. Amir Safati is a strong evangelical Christian of the right sort. <laughs> and he was a general in the Israeli Army, and he gives you a lot of up-to-date cultural information about what's happening right now in the land. Sometimes it's more than you can handle, and uh, it's just coming, 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 coming like this. And he gives you videos and footage of what's happening. And uh, he was—he had a quote on there from a, a, an Israeli. I think he was an Israeli military expert, and he said the fact that they have mastered drone bombing tells you Russia is involved because they do not have the technology or the capability to do drone bombing. Someone has given that to them and taught them how to do it. So that's, that's an interesting development. There's also something very strange, uh, uh, according to Amir, about the fact that the security forces allowed the uh, enemy to get so close to the dividing fence. And they wonder whether or not, strategically, um, the Israeli army said, OK, you're going to attack we're not going to stand in your way to attack because of whatever reason, whether it's they want the world to know really what's going on uh, or whether or not it's political. We've got to be honest, Israel is a divided nation at this time, uh, but a war would bring them together. And uh, that may also have been a part of what happened. We don't know, but it's a very serious event. And its size of magnitude has not been seen since 1973, the Yom Kippur War in Israel. Now, why is this interesting to us who are Bible students? Well, the Bible does tell us in a number of different places there are going to be wars in Israel in the last days. Uh, In Matthew chapter 24, the Lord Jesus said in the signs of the times that there would be wars and rumors of wars. And whilst that is true globally, it is especially true locally to Israel because Matthew is a Jewish gospel and Jesus was writing especially in the context of the land of Israel. And there are going to be a lot of Israeli wars in the last days. Daniel 9.26 tells us that there will be conflict until the end. It's a part of the pattern Israel is going to go through. And and unfortunately, we're never going to see peace in the Middle East until the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes and reigns. Now, that's why we as Christians should pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that God would hold back these things as much as possible for the good of, uh, of the gospel and for the safety of the Jewish people. So the Bible teaches that there are going to be wars. And in particular, the Bible talks about uh, three 
what I think of as pre-tribulational conflicts. Now, the tribulation is the last seven years before Jesus comes back. Time, big time of trouble. Uh, but there are three wars that I think lead up to that time. Um, and the reasons uh, why are especially to do with the last one of those war, which is Ezekiel 38. You'll see it says a Russian-led war. It's called the Gog and Magog invasion in Ezekiel chapter 38. And uh, that war has Israel burying their dead for seven years. So it's unlikely they'll be doing that in the tribulation. So it's going to be before the tribulation begins, probably. It's unlikely they're going to be doing that in the kingdom as well. So it looks to me like that that is a pre-tribulational war. And the other two seem to precede it. Now, if you have your Bible, I know I've got you to read Psalm 83. We're going to come back to Psalm 83 in a minute, but I just want to show you this because a lot of this is, is interesting to the Lord's people at the moment. Just turn to Ezekiel 38 a moment, please. And uh, we'll have a look at this, this conflict just very briefly. Ezekiel 38. And in verse 1 it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now the name Gog is a name which means a great leader. You might remember in the Old Testament there was a king called Og, king of Bashan. And the OG is a name which means great mighty one. This is like an adaption of that name. And it means he's the, he's the leader, the king, the great one, who's of the land of Magog. It's his land. So that's the spiritual name. But the geographical name is given in the next part of verse 2 where it says he's the prince of Rosh. Now, Rosh can be translated in one of two ways, because it's the Hebrew word for a head, like a head teacher, uh, Rosh Shavar. And he, Rosh can be a head uh, in that way, but it's here used in terms of a geographical location. And Rosh is uh, linguistically connected to the name Russia. And when you come to the next names, it's not even hard to see because Meshek is, is Moscow and Tubal is Tubolsk, which are the two major cities of, uh, of Russia. And uh, as you go on through this passage, you'll realize that that's really a, a, an undisputable claim because God says that they have come out of the far north to attack Israel. And if you put your finger on a map of Israel, trace it far north, and where do you come to? You come to Russia and you come to Moscow. So this is uh, where this is talking about. And it, it describes an allied invasion of the land of Israel. If you come down to verse 5, it says, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Goma, with, and all its troops at the house of Tagama from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. Now, Persia is Iran. Ethiopia is Ethiopia. Uh, the Hebrew word is Cush. It can also be Sudan. And that's also where um, 
the people who were called the Kushites in Bible times came from, which is interesting because of what's happening in Sudan at the moment. Libya, as we know, is Libya, North Africa. Goma is arguably Germany, according to the Jewish use of the word Goma in their rabbinical traditions, and Tagama is Turkey. Now, what's interesting about that allied group there is you have no near neighbours. No near neighbours. Now, you can be pretty sure if Persia and Turkey and maybe Germany and the people from Africa are starting an attack against Israel, and they're all coming against Israel at one time, you're not telling me the people in Gaza are going to sit there and just watch. (laughs) They're going to say, great, this is our moment. You know, all the others are coming in. We're going to piggyback on the back there and we're going to win. So why are they not mentioned? What this tells me is they have already been neutralized before this war happens. And that's why I believe Psalm 83 and Isaiah 17, which is a battle against Syria, come before the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war. They precede it. And uh, that's why this situation is very interesting. At the same time, we've got Russia on the go and we've also got Iran uh, developing their nuclear weapons. And if you come down to verse 11 in Ezekiel 38, you'll notice it says, you will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now I've got to ask you, does that sound like the situation in Israel today? The answer is no. They're not a people living in peace. And they do live in a place where they have walls. They've got a very contentious wall between them and the West Bank. So people say, oh, we're on the edge of Ezekiel 38. Gog and Magog, it can happen any time. I've got to be honest, I don't think it can. Because I don't think Israel's living in peace yet. This war, I think, will happen after these other wars. Because you see, Israel will never be at peace as long as her enemies have the power to destroy her. If you want to make peace with Israel, I want to tell you, it's not two men shaking hands on the White House lawn that's going to do it. We've seen that before. We've seen the Oslo Accords and all the rest of it. And no Israeli lives in peace if they live in the land. You'll see, if you go to the land of Israel, you'll see men who go jogging and they carry a pistol because they know any time things can kick off. They do not live in peace. So they're never going to be at peace while their enemies are active. Therefore, before this war happens and the Russian-led invasion of Israel comes slightly more unexpectedly, there have to be other wars before that. And what I see in the three wars, as I said here, is like the circle getting bigger and God knocking out the enemies, which is what this, uh, these judgments are about. Psalm 83 deals with the neighborhood knockout, as I call it, the immediate neighbors. Isaiah 17, let's go to Isaiah 17, and we'll see that that goes slightly bigger again. Isaiah chapter 17. And this this passage says the burden against Damascus, the burden is a prophecy, an oracle, and it says, Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. 
This is talking about the leveling of Damascus. And if we read on in the passage, it's in, a, in the context of a war after they have tried to take the land from Israel. Now, when has Damascus ever become a city that's uninhabitable? Never. Damascus, along with Jericho, has the unique distinction of being two of the oldest inhabited cities in the history of the world and continually uh, inhabited. So Damascus has never become a ruinous heap. Bombed, yes. Having a civil war, yes. But never uninhabited. But that day is coming. In fact, you might not know this from the news, but uh, a few days before this conflict kicked off uh, on the 6th of October, Israel actually launched an attack against Syria. And uh, they, they, they took out, uh, of course they never admit it's Israel, but we know it's Israel. Uh, and they took out some of their uh, facilities, I understand. So that's a war that's going to happen as well. So as you see, the wars, the concentric circles getting bigger and bigger leading up to uh, the Gog and Magog war. They take out the media enemies around them, their local enemies. Then it goes to the bigger enemy, Syria. Then it goes to the bigger, bigger group of Russia and Iran and that. And uh, that then, I believe, lays the foundation for the rise of the Antichrist to come and deceive Israel and say, let's make a peace treaty. Because now Israel's got no enemies. They're going to say, all right, sure, we'll make peace. <laughs> it's not a problem to us now. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's where I think we're going. So it's, it's very interesting what is happening. And I would ask you to bear in mind those three conflicts uh, in your Bible reading. But what we see in, in Psalm 83 is a situation which... The prophet, and I'm going to call him a prophet, even though he was a psalmist, a psalm writer by the name of Asaph, foresaw uh, spiritually. Now, some people think this has a historical fulfillment in 2 Chronicles 20 in the Battle of Jehoshaphat. And certainly there are a lot of similarities to that. But when you read it, you realize it goes far beyond that. And it has uh, the ring of eschatology all about it and uh, is certainly true for the end times. So I'd like us to look at this tonight and see how this is going to be fulfilled. I'd like to see three parts of this psalm. We see in the first part Asaph's problem, secondly Asaph's prescription, and thirdly Asaph's prayer. That's how this passage is divided up. And Asaph was a spiritual insight Man was great spiritual insight. He's the man who wrote Psalm 73, not to envy the wicked of this world. Psalm 80, the call to revival. Psalm 82, the judgment on the judges. And uh, that was an amazing prophetic psalm, I believe, as well. So we're in good hands tonight as we look at Israel under attack from his perspective. So first of all, then, let's consider Asaph's problem. And his problem is this in verse 1, that God is not doing anything. And he says, do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult and those who hate you have lifted up their head. He's writing at a time uh, when he's seeing Israel coming under attack. And yet it seems like God is quiet. 
and God isn't doing anything. I wonder if you've ever felt like that in your life. You know, and sometimes you're longing for the Lord to do something and, and it just seems like the Lord is, is, is quiet and inactive. A bit like when the Lord was asleep in the boat and uh, the disciples were in the middle of the storm and they had to wake him up, as it were, uh, to, to respond. Well, this is Asaph's reply. He's calling out to God saying, don't stay silent, Lord. Don't hold your peace. Don't be still. Act now because there's something very serious happening. And he very, very cleverly draws attention to the fact that it's not Israel that's under attack. It is the Lord who is under attack. Because in verse 2 he says, For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. He's saying, God, they've come against us, but we know it's you they have an issue with. And I want to tell you that matches perfectly the situation we see at the moment and we'll see in the last days. Because what do all the nations around Israel have in common? The fact is they all are Islamic. They're all Islamic. And they want to wipe out the name of the God of Israel. You see, the fact that that God's name exists is to them a thorn in the side. Because their God is supposed to be greater and stronger and more powerful. But Israel's existence denies that to them. And so he says, your enemies have come against you. And he's calling on the Lord to take action for his own glory's sake. And by the way, that's a masterpiece of prayer. When you want to pray with power, pray for things that God will get the glory from. Because the purpose of prayer is not to get my will done on earth, but his will done in heaven, so that we can say, hallowed be thy name. That's the purpose of prayer. And this is what he was doing. And he points out here, uh, the, the, the problem is that, that their enemies have ambitions, and their enemies have an alliance. Their ambitions, in, uh, in verse 4 say this they have said come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more their ambition is to destroy the Jewish people now I wish I could get this across to the people of the world because you know what a lot of people in the world see Israel as the problem don't they you know, Israel won't settle down to a two-state solution and all the rest of it. Actually, that's not true. Benjamin Netanyahu said, let's go for it. Let's do it. But the Palestinians, so-called, will never agree to it. The moment they make that deal uh, and they say, okay, we'll have peace based on the peace uh, of a two-state solution, they have denied their claim to Jerusalem and the land of Israel. It's not the size of Israel that's the problem. It's the existence of Israel that's the problem. They don't want Israel to be smaller. They don't want Israel to be there at all. And if you listen to their rhetoric, that's what they've been saying all along. In the Six-Day War, 1967, do you remember President Nasser down in Egypt? He said, we will drive the Israelis into the sea and drown them. That was his plan, their tank invasion. 
On the very first day of the year 2000, at the turn of a new millennium, the Daily Telegraph newspaper had blazoned across the top of it, Iran says Israel must die. And this is what they're about. Wipe out Israel. Get rid of them. And this is their ambition. Come and let us cut them off from being a nation. That the name of Israel be remembered no more. They don't want the name of Israel mentioned anywhere. That's why you're not even seeing the name of Israel in countries which other outside of this group want to have good relations because of oil and so forth with these people. That's why you'll see things like the BBC and so on often won't talk about Jerusalem. They'll talk about Tel Aviv instead because you know we, we, we feel more comfortable talking about Tel Aviv than talking about Jerusalem as the capital. Or you'll see things like and even uh, Monopoly made a, a world map uh, game and they removed Israel from the map. That's just one illustration. You'll find many illustrations of this. Let us take the name of Israel off the map. They want it not to exist. And uh, they're determined to do that. And they have a, a plan which is against all of God's people. To see them all taken away. Go back to verse 3. It says they have taken crafty counsel against your people. And consulted together against your sheltered ones. Your hidden ones. I think the King James says. That's an interesting phrase. Who are your hidden ones? Well there's two ways you can read that. You could say Israel is hidden under the shelter of God's wing. And you know they're the protected ones in the land of Israel. It's one way of reading it. But I think the hidden ones, if you look at it in scripture, are the people who are Jews, but they look like Gentiles. Do you remember Joseph down in the land of Egypt? He looked so much like a Gentile. When his brothers came down, they thought he was an Egyptian. They didn't know he was a Hebrew and he had to show them he was a Hebrew. And the best illustration I can give is Esther. You remember Esther in the book of Esther? Mordecai said, hide your identity. Don't tell the king you're, you're a Jew. And she kept it hidden. And she was hidden, one of the hidden ones. And what they're saying is, we're not just going to get the Jews in the land. We're going to find out where all the Jews are all over the world. This was Hitler's ambition. Find out who has Jewish DNA. Find out who are the Jews hidden among our society. We'll get rid of them all. Do you know that's going to mean people in this room? People in this room. Because there are people in this room who have Jewish descent. And just now they didn't know that until a few years ago. And they found out, do you know what? My grandmother was a Jew or something like this. And it's revelation. But God has got his hidden ones all over the world. And the devil wants every single one of them killed. And that's their plan. That's their ambition. Now, what is their alliance? Verse 5, for they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. They have made a a plan. They come together. And what we have in verse uh, 6 through to 8 is a list of 11 nations or 11 groups, uh, which were the names in Bible times for some of the nations that are active against Israel today. We have Edom, Moab, Gebel, Ammon, and Amalek, and Lot uh, scattered throughout that lot. And they are the people of Jordan. 
the people of Jordan on the West Bank. And by the way, that's relevant to what was happening today because the people who are the quote-unquote Palestinians, there is no people called the Palestinians. That's That's a myth that was invented because the Palestinians was a name given by the Romans to the land of Israel as an insult against them. Uh, the Palestinians are Jordanians. So that's this people group. They're Jordanian Arabs. And uh, that's these group of people, different bloodlines, different groups. Then you have the Ishmaelites and the Hagrites. The Ishmaelites are the Arabs proper, people from like Saudi Arabia and so on. And the Hagrites are the Egyptians. Do you remember Hagar, the the maid of Abraham and Sarah, she was an Egyptian. That's who the Hagrites are. And interestingly enough, one of the things that Amir has reported on his uh, Behold Israel is the assassination of Jews in Alexandria. And that's one of the things also happening as well as the attack in the land of Israel at this time. And Iran is also rattling her saber. And uh, so is this group of people, Lebanon, up in Tyre. Tyre is up in the Lebanon, up in the north. And uh, you've got Hezbollah up there. And uh, then you've got the Philistia, which is the land of Gaza, the, the, the strip on the side. And Assyria, as it was called in Bible times, which is basically the land of Iraq. I think there's more to Assyria than I can go into tonight for prophetic relevance. But they've made this confederacy, and we look at this today and we say, Lord, that's the neighbours who are all against Israel, and uh, it's so relevant to what is happening today. So that's Asaph's problem, and he brings it to the Lord in prayer. The second thing we have is Asaph's prescription, because in verses 9 to 17, Asaph does something which we shouldn't always do. He tells God how to answer his prayers. Now, I've tried that, and nine times out of the ten, it doesn't normally work. But Asaph does it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he wants, basically, the enemies of God to be wiped out. And he uses two lots of illustrations. He uses historical examples, and then he uses uh, creational, what I'd say is illustrations from nature, creational illustrations. The historical illustrations are in verses 9 to 12. He says, deal with them as with Midian and uh, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became as refuse on the earth. Now, who are Midian, Sisera, and Jabin? Well, uh, these people are the people who Deborah and Barak fought against in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 4. And that's up in the land of Galilee where they fought them, where there's the brook Kishon, that's also where Elijah slew the prophets of Baal, and and Endor, which is where Saul went to the witch, you remember. And... uh, This is where they had victory up there. And they they became like refuse on the earth. Literally their dead bodies were left uh, there on the battlefield. And by the way, if you see the photographs of the terrorists who have been eliminated by the IDF, you see a very graphic illustration of what that means, whose bodies become refuse on the earth. Uh, Then in verse 11, it says, make their nobles, this is their leaders, like Oreb and Zeb. Yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. 
Now, who are Oreb and Zeb, Zeba and Zalmunna? These were the leaders who Gideon neutralized when he came against them in the book of Judges as well, in Judges 7 and 8. And we're looking at the life of Gideon on Sunday mornings. And uh, these are four of the leaders of the Midianites, which are Ishmaelites by another name, and the Amalekites. And their leaders were taken out. And again, that's something you see happening in the land of Israel with the battle at the moment. Israel goes for the leaders and takes out the leaders to try and stop the war uh, as quickly as possible. And these people had the same ambition who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. The word pastures there is interesting. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says the sanctuaries of God. And that's what they want. They want the Temple Mount and they want to uh, wipe out the Jewish claim to that whole area on Zion and Jerusalem. And this is uh, why Asaph says, Lord, deal with them like you dealt with the, the people in the book of Judges. Can I put it to you in language that I hear us using in the prayer meeting? Oh, Lord, do it again. <laughs> you know, we pray that for revival, don't we? Lord, do it again. Do what you did in the past again. This is what Asaph is praying militarily. Lord, when you gave our army victory over the enemies, give it victory again. Uh, I'm going to be honest. That's how I'm praying. That's how I'm praying at this time. Praying that God would give victory to the Israeli army for the protection of his people. Not that I like war and death or, or want the death even of the Palestinians. I want them to be saved. But when it comes to a conflict and they launch an attack, then uh, I pray for victory for Israel. But the creational illustrations come in verses 13 to 17. And he uses one picture from nature after another. He says in verse 13, Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. Have you ever seen uh, one of these tornadoes on the news in, in Tornado Alley uh, in America and seen the, these twisters come along, the devastation and, and all the stuff? It's amazing when you see these, these twisters coming, you see all these bits of metal and, and things flying around and bits of wood. And it's, it's what they call the chaff. It is, you get chaff from wheat and things like that. But this is the, the stuff that's loose, it's flying around, just been flung and stuff gets displaced from far and wide. And he's saying, God, make them like that. Displace them, throw them far and wide away from here. Uh, and then in verse 14, he likens it to a forest fire. He says, as the fire burns the woods and as the flames sets the mountains on fire. Now, this is a, a, another picture of destruction. Asaph is saying, Lord, come and wipe them out like a forest fire. But I think there's something interesting here just for us to take note of because we are in an age where we are seeing massive amounts of forest fires. Is that just me or is that other people seeing that in the news as well? Even Spain kicking off again uh, in this last week with the rise of temperatures in Europe. What is the significance of all these forest fires? Well, if you have the time later, read the end of Ezekiel 20. At the end of Ezekiel 20, God prophesies a forest fire that's going to sweep through the land of Israel. And it is actually a picture that God gave the prophet of the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar and his armies through the land of Israel. And forest fires are a picture 
of a military invasion. And I believe that what God is saying with these forest fires in all these countries like Hawaii and everything is going to be widespread military invasions and there's going to be uh, 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 conflict uh, in the world. Uh, that's how I understand it. I could be wrong, but that's, it's not a prophetic word, but that's how I understand it based on this. And I think it's worth to, to consider that. And then the third picture he uses in verse 15, he says, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. This is an ever storm cloud, thunderstorm picture. Uh, and you think of children hiding under the covers while well, he says, Lord, frighten them with your power like in a storm. And verse 16, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish. And what he's praying for is a reversal. They wanted to wipe us out, Lord. Will you wipe them out? Will you make them perish? And uh, this is poetic justice, as we would say, that he is praying for. And I think... That is one of the things we're going to see happen, as I explained, with these different wars. We'll see these neighborhoods wiped out. Benjamin Netanyahu has said, this is war, and, and the people of Gaza have come to war against us. They will rue the day that they have done this. I think Israel is really going to go for it this time, people. I really do. And I think it'll be like this. Uh, we'll see something very heavy happen there. But the final part here in this is Asaph's prayer in verse 18 and it brings us back to that theme of God's glory because he says in the last part that they may know that you whose name alone is the Lord are the most high over all the earth why is Asaph praying all this again why is he praying for victory so that they know that you alone and your name is the Lord your name is Jehovah Yahweh as it is in Hebrew that you are the most high over all the earth Now, this is very relevant, as I've said already, because of the Islamic connection to these things. You know, in every city where Islam goes, it seeks the highest ground to set up its minuets, their tall towers, where they give that awful wailing call. And the reason they do that is they want to get above church buildings and they want to get above every other uh, religious place because they want to say that our God is the most high. Their God is the one that rules over. And when that cry goes out, it says, Allah Akbar. I can do an impersonation of it, but I won't. But it says, Allah Akbar, Akbar Allah. A lot of people translate that as God is great. But it's not. It's God is greater. Allah is greater. Greater than who? Greater than the Lord. This is a spiritual battle. And it is saying that it's a spiritual battle and it's trying to stamp out the Lord. And this is what Asaph himself recognizes. So he says, Lord, have the victory that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And here's the interesting thing. All those three wars, Isaiah 17, as well as this one here, And Ezekiel 38, they all have this as the conclusion of their passages. That God's name may be hallowed, that they may know that the Lord is God. 
That is one of the things that's going to happen in the early days before we come to the tribulation. Islam, I believe, is going to fall. I don't believe it's going to be totally annihilated. It will still limp along, but it's going to, the back of it is going to be broken. And when the Gog and Magog war happens especially, the people will know that the God of Israel is the true God. That's why when the tribulation starts, they fear the wrath of the Lamb. Because they know who it is they're resisting, and they know who it is they're fighting against. But it's one of the things we're going to see happen, perhaps if it happens in our lifetime, that the Lord establishes the fact that he is the Most High. And as we bring this to a close now, all I can say is, Lord, hallowed be thy name. And may God bless and help the people of Israel at this time. Well, thank you for bearing with